Hello everybody and welcome into episode number 99 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, how can we stand firm in the middle of crisis and pandemic? So happy Monday, friends. We're not going to celebrate episode number 100 yet tomorrow because of two reasons. One is, one day we had two episodes in one day when I split up the Bible reading from the commentary, and the other is we had... Uh, no episode 92. So we're really not going to celebrate till we get to episode number 102. And by then I'll probably forget. Oh well. Happy Monday to you guys. Today is day number 20 of quarantining and sheltering in place, staying at home for all of us in rainy central California. Yes, I said rainy boo. I'm not complaining about shelter in place, though, because it actually seems to be working here, and I'm kind of glad that California was the first to begin issuing those sorts of orders, but like you, probably all around the world, I'm praying for God to heal our land and for things to return to whatever the new normal is going to look like. If you're paying attention to the numbers and the graphs, today was kind of an interesting day for the United States of America. Uh, Maybe a good day, but let's see if it's an anomaly or a trend we're going to check tomorrow. I'm praying for a trend. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for our world leaders to repent and turn to God and for him to heal our land. Today's Bible passages are Leviticus chapter 9, Psalm chapter 10, Proverbs 24, 1 Thessalonians 3. Our focus today is on standing firm which is the thing that prompted Paul to write his letter to the Thessalonians in the first place. The thing is, the Thessalonians were sort of in a similar place to where many of our churches are right now. They were undergoing a heavy, heavy, heavy trial. It wasn't a plague of virus, we don't think, but more of a plague of persecution. You see, Paul and Silas founded the church in Thessalonica, and initially things were going really well for them. They preached in the Jewish synagogues there, and several Jews converted and began to follow Jesus, along with some God-fearing Greeks who were kind of Greek-slash-Gentile people who had adopted some of the beliefs and customs of the Jews. And there were also several prominent Thessalonian women. So the young church was a kind of eclectic mix of Jewish people that had converted Gentiles that adapted Jewish customs and then just regular old Greeks. Unfortunately, many of the remaining Jewish people in the synagogue, many of those who had rejected Paul and Silas's team, teaching, they were apparently very upset and the founding of this new church and the teaching of Paul and Silas really, really inflamed them, and so they basically started a citywide riot, which led to Paul and Silas having to leave the city in order to help restore peace, but it also left the early young church, who was still in a fledgling state, without its leaders, without being able to see its leaders face-to-face, and it left them in that kind of cauldron of anger and persecution. Now, Paul and Silas, shortly after this, traveled to Berea and preached there and had a good impact there, but the Thessalonica people were still mad at them, and they sent a group of agitators to Berea, and they also vigorously opposed Paul and Silas there. So the church in Thessalonica was just weeks or, I don't know, maybe a few months old. The Bible says Paul and Silas preached there for like three weeks, but maybe Maybe they stayed on 
perhaps a little longer than that before this riot happened. And they likely had very immature leadership, and their pastors, church planners, were forced to leave the city. Again and again, Paul and Silas tried to come back and visit the Thessalonians there to encourage them, but again and again, they were prevented from doing so. And this made Paul more and more concerned and worried and uh, daily praying for these guys. Uh, and, and he was concerned the church would be undone by these attacks and not at all standing firm. So they finally got a break and they were able to send Timothy there to encourage the church and check on their well-being. And the letter of First Thessalonians is Paul's response to the news that the church was actually doing well and standing firm and walking in faith. So let's read First Thessalonians 3 now and pay special attention to Timothy's report in the middle. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible, Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith, so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we were going to experience affliction, and as you know, it happened. For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent Timothy to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. But now, Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you? as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone just as we do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. You can tell just reading the emotions through the words that Paul is just absolutely brimming with joy that he's hearing that the church is standing firm in the Lord. Considering how young that church was and considering how strong the opposition against them was, it's really a genuine miracle that they're still there, that they're still standing firm. And the good news for us and for them is that even though their human pastors had left, Their chief pastor, shepherd Jesus, the head of the church, had never abandoned them. I am reminded of the promise of Jesus in John chapter 10, verses 14 through 30, and I'm only going to read part of those, where he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep, skipping to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So that passage tells us 
how God preserves his people. It's not based on our strength, even though we are exhorted to hold on to the gospel. It's based on the strength and the power of Jesus and his Father. No one is able to snatch us away. And that passage, in turn, reminds me of this wonderful song. I hope you've heard it before. It's called In Christ Alone, and it's by the United Kingdom worship leader Stuart Townend. It is one of my favorite modern worship songs. It's a great song, but it also has great lyrics. It's not shallow. It's deep. It's powerful. It's Christ-exalting. And my wife and daughters uh, today for our live-streamed church, this was our fourth Sunday, as incredible as that sounds, our fourth Sunday to not be together as a church at Valley Baptist Church. Um, but the Lord has been very gracious to our, our times together. And this morning, it was great uh, for worship, our worship leaders to lead us from their homes. And one of our worship leaders, Janet, and my daughters, they led us in this song, In Christ Alone, which has this line. I think it's the third verse, something like that. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, here's the good part, no power of hell, no scheme of man can have ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll, I'll stand. We don't stand in our own power, but we are enabled in the power of Christ to stand firm. That passage in the song it's based on it kind of gives us our first clue and our first hope in standing firm in the middle of affliction. The power to stand doesn't come from ourselves, but from Christ, our Savior and Preserver, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. What else does God's Word say to us about standing firm? Well, let's look at Philippians 4.1, which is a passage that talks about standing firm. And Paul says there, So then, my dear, dearly loved and longed for, brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, if you're like most people, you might only read one chapter a day of the Bible. And while it's great to read at least a chapter a day, sometimes we miss things when we don't read bigger chunks of Scripture, like the meat of what Paul is saying here in Philippians 4.1. He's saying in Philippians 4.1, hey, this is how you stand firm. But if you don't go back and reread the last part of Philippians 3, you're going to miss out on how to stand firm. But good news, we're going to read it right now, starting in verse 12. Paul says, not that I've already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think different about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and be careful. Pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. 
but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Now, I want to point out the very first thing here that Paul says is, uh, he says, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. And that's the right way to think about standing firm and holding on and persevering in the Lord. Yes, we take hold of him, but the better news is because our grip is weak and slippery, he takes hold of us and he's not going to let go. It's important that we stand firm. It's important that we hold on to the gospel and believe it wholeheartedly. It's important that we persevere, but the strength to do that is in his grip, not in our grip. And so this one section, this last part of Philippians 3, it has several truths other than that glorious one that will help you and I to stand firm in a situation like the one we are faced with now when the whole world is shaking. So step number one, Paul says, Forget what is behind. Worrying about the past is as counterproductive to standing firm in the faith as worrying about the future is, which Jesus also cautions us about. So here's the thing. We stand firm by trusting God today and walking in his daily bread for today, not over worrying or worrying at all about yesterday or the future. We remember Matthew 6.34 where Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So in the trouble we face each day, we look to Jesus, we cry out to him for rescue, but we're forgetting about what lies behind and we're not worrying about what lies ahead. That's how we stand firm. Step number two, we want to pursue heavenly goals, not earthly goals. So in terms of pursuing heavenly goals, this is an allusion to us seeking first the kingdom of God. We stand firm by first and foremost prioritizing our love of God because it's the first and greatest commandment. We stand firm by loving our neighbor as ourselves because that's the second great commandment. And we stand firm by seeking first the kingdom of God. And verse 19 in 1 Thessalonians 3 shows us the deadly danger that comes from focusing on earthly goals, such a pursuit that is primarily concerned with meeting earthly goals ends in destruction. But those who first and foremost pursue the king and his kingdom, who follow Jesus, they have this amazing promise that's given to us by Jesus himself from Matthew nineteen twenty nine, where he says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. Maybe it's a sacrifice in the short term to seek first the kingdom of God and not seek first our earthly goals or building our own kingdom. But that hundred times more thing, boy, that sure does sound good. And that inheriting eternal life, That sounds like a fantastic blessing from the Lord and worthy of every short-term sacrifice we make. So number two way we stand firm is we focus on heavenly goals, not earthly goals. Number three, 
is we focus on the hope that is the return of Jesus. So Paul says we're citizens of heaven uh, and not citizens first and foremost of our own country or our earth or even our ethnicity. We're first and foremost citizens of heaven and we eagerly await the return of the king to establish his heavenly earthly kingdom forever. In that hope and in the eager waiting for the return of Jesus, there is strength to stand firm. Twice in this really short letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, he refers them to the second coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus, and he tells them to take comfort, hope, and encouragement in that return. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who were asleep, you know, they died, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, And with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So there's three ways that we stand firm in the midst of global affliction and shaking. We don't worry about yesterday or tomorrow, but we rest in today's daily bread provision from God of protection for us. We pursue heavenly goals in the kingdom of God rather than earthly and worldly goals, and we anticipate, hope for, cry out and say, Maranatha, come quickly, Jesus. Our hope is in the second coming of Jesus when he will set everything right. So let's ask our friend Charles Spurgeon to close us out with a brief comment on 1 Thessalonians 3.8, standing firm. He says this, When I have seen God's people steadfast, my own fears have fled. Yes, I have said, the Lord keeps the feet of his saints. He is a wall of fire around his own. If it were possible, the powers of evil would deceive the elect, but it's not possible. The saints are steadfast, and each steadfast one cheers his minister and helps him lay aside his anxieties and rejoice in the certainty that the gospel will triumph. The steadfast people benefit our life by stimulating us to greater exertion. I believe the steadfast people help the minister to a high degree of usefulness. When the man of God sees his people living to God at a high rate of piety, he speaks many things that otherwise he never would have spoken. He glories in the work of God, and with no bated breath or trace of hesitation, he points to his people and cries, See what God has done! He exults over converts with a holy joy. He cries, See what they used to be and what they are now! See how life has been made to spring up in the midst of death, and how light shines where before darkness reigns. Take away the living evidence of divine power from the church and you lower the preacher's spirit at once and deprive him of power to demonstrate his commission by the signs that follow it. Of godly established Christians, I may quote the words of David, Happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. They will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gate. The best answer to all the opponents of the old-fashioned gospel is the godly zeal of a fervent church. 
Amen to that. And I would add to what Spurgeon says here that it is not only ministers that are excited and encouraged to see Christians standing firm, but also other Christians, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, etc. So when a few Christians are standing firm, they're going to enable many Christians to stand firm. So brothers and sisters, the world is shaking and the power of God, I exhort you and me to stand firm. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron, his sons, and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, Take a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and present them before the Lord. And tell the Israelites, Take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, male yearlings without blemish for a burnt offering, an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord is going to appear to you. They brought what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the whole community came forward and stood before the Lord. Moses said, This is what the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Approach the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering. Make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the people's offering and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. So Aaron approached the altar and slaughtered the calf as a sin offering for himself. Aaron's sons brought the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and applied it to the horns of the altar. He poured out the blood at the base of the altar. He burned the fat, the kidneys, and the fatty lobe of the liver from the sin offering on the altar, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He burned the flesh and the hide outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering. Aaron's sons brought him the blood, and he splattered it on all sides of the altar. They brought him the burnt offering piece by piece along with the head, and he burned them on the altar. He washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Aaron presented the people's offering. He took the male goat for the people's sin offering, slaughtered it, and made a sin offering with it as he did before. He presented the burnt offering and sacrificed it according to the regulation. Next, he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar in addition to the next to the morning burnt offering. Finally, he slaughtered the ox and the ram as the people's fellowship sacrifice. Aaron's sons brought him the blood and he splattered it on all sides of the altar. They also brought the fat portions from the ox and the ram, the fat tail, the fat surrounding the entrails, the kidneys, and the fatty lobe of the liver, and placed these on the breasts. Aaron burned the fat portions on the altar, but he presented the beasts and the right thigh as a presentation offering before the Lord as Moses had commanded. Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. He came down after sacrificing the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering. Moses and Aaron then entered the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell face down. Amen. Psalm chapter 10, verse 1. Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked relentlessly pursue their victims. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. In all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks there is no accountability since there is no God. His ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments have no effect on him. He scoffs at all his adversaries. 
He says to himself, I will never be moved from generation to generation without calamity. Cursing, deceit, and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. He waits in ambush near settlements. He kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize a victim. He seizes a victim and drags him in his net. So he is oppressed and beaten down. Helpless people fall because of the wicked one's strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. Rise up, Lord God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why has the wicked person despised God? He says to himself, You will not demand an account. But you yourself have seen trouble and grief observing it in order to take the matter into your own hands. The helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked, evil person until you look for his wickedness, but it can't be found. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere humans from the earth may terrify them no more. Proverbs chapter 24. Don't envy the evil or desire to be with them, for their hearts plan violence and their words stir up trouble. A house built is built by wisdom and it is established by understanding. By knowledge the rooms are filled with every precious and beautiful treasure. A wise warrior is better than a strong one and a man of knowledge than one of strength, for you should wage war with sound guidance. Victory comes with many counselors. Wisdom is inaccessible to a fool. He does not open his mouth at the city gate. The one who plots evil will be called a schemer. A foolish scheme is sin, and a mocker is detestable to people. If you do nothing in a difficult time, your strength is limited. Rescue those being taken off to death, and save those stumbling toward slaughter. If you say, but we didn't know about this, won't he who weighs hearts consider it? Won't he who protects your life know? Won't he repay a person according to his work? Eat honey, my son, for it is good, and the honeycomb is sweet to your palate. Realize that wisdom is the same for you. If you can find it, you will have a future, and your hope will never fade. Don't set an ambush, you wicked one, at the camp of the righteous man. Don't destroy his dwelling. Though a righteous person falls seven times, he will get up, but the wicked will stumble into ruin. Don't gloat when your enemy falls, and don't let your heart rejoice when he stumbles, or the Lord will see, be displeased, and turn his wrath away from him. Don't be agitated by evildoers, and don't envy the wicked, for the evil have no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord as well as the king, and don't associate with rebels, for destruction will come suddenly from them. Who knows what distress these two can bring? These sayings also belong to the wise. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. Whoever says to the guilty, you are innocent, peoples will curse him and nations will denounce him. But it will go well with those who convict the guilty and a generous blessing will come to them. He who gives an honest answer gives a kiss on the lips. Complete your outdoor work and prepare your field. Afterward, build your house. Don't testify against your neighbor without cause. Don't deceive with your lips. Don't say, I'll do to him what he did to me. I'll repay the man for what he has done. 
I went by the field of a slacker and by the vineyard of one lacking sense. Thistles had come up everywhere. Weeds covered the ground and the stone wall was ruined. I saw and took it to heart. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber and your need like a bandit. Well, friends, may we walk in wisdom. May we not, even in this time of shelter, be idle, but let us cry out to the Lord, seeking Him with all of our heart and asking Him for deliverance from this affliction and that He would do His work in this world. May the Lord bless you and keep you and keep you safe in Jesus' name. Godspeed.